categories are. The category of the book. <laughs> I don't even know him. Um, individual. Individual eschatology, what happens with the believer when he dies. We talked about that. And then general eschatology. General eschatology has to do with the end times, things that will take place uh, at the end of, you know, the, the earth and uh, those sorts of things. Now, there are certain, especially within the area of general eschatology, there are a lot of areas of agreement. We agree, hopefully, that Jesus is going to return. Everybody knows that. Jesus said, I'm going to come back. In fact, we're going to look at that in just some of these places in just a little while. We agree that when he returns, it's going to be good for Christians. Um, and we agree that judgment will take place at the end. Um, and that God will uh, definitely save uh, his people. These are just a, a couple or a few of the areas of agreement. There are, however, areas of disagreement. There are four major uh, positions, four major uh, different positions that uh, evangelical Christians will take regarding uh, what the end time is going to look like in alphabetical order. Uh, you have what's called amillennialism. It's actually not the greatest of terms for it. Uh, some would, would rather call it realized millennialism. And that uh, really has the idea that we are uh, living right now in, during this time in a, a time when uh, the Lord himself is seated on his throne, ruling from heaven, and his saints are uh, ruling with him in heaven. A second uh, category, or second position would be called dispensational premillennialism and that means that Jesus is going to come back before a uh, thousand year millennial reign here on earth and that before he comes back that he will rapture the church out and, and begin dealing exclusively with the nation of, of Israel. Uh, that's a real thumbnail sketch. Uh, third one in alphabetical order is historical premillennialism Historical premillennialism also believes that Jesus will return before the millennium to uh, set up his earthly uh, reign for a thousand years. Uh, historic premillennialism does not hold to the idea that there will be a seven-year tribulation before the millennium um, in which God raptures his church out uh, during this age. Um, and then there's what's called postmillennialism. That's the fourth of those major positions. Postmillennialism would believe that um, the uh, earth, uh, here and now, the church will uh, do such a work that the gospel will spread forth into all the lands and things will get better. And so that will kind of rule, that will bring in a millennium here on earth and uh, Jesus will return at the end of that millennial age of a thousand years. Okay, uh, that was a quick overview. We've looked at that before. We've looked at key passages, um, Daniel 9 and Daniel 9. Uh, we saw where Daniel deals with the 70 weeks. We saw that really what Daniel's looking at there is the covenant, the whole idea of covenant disobedience and how God will uh, discipline his people for covenant disobedience and that they were in that period of time and that Daniel realized that the Lord had promised 70 years and they were coming out. And so he, he recognizes that uh, from Jeremiah 
and he goes back further into the Torah and he finds what the people are supposed to do if the Lord's going to restore them after their discipline for disobeying the covenant and they're supposed to pray and confess their sins and the sins of their people. That's what Daniel's doing there. And then the angel comes and talks to him about them 70 weeks. And you see that the 70 weeks have this, this idea of rest involved with them. And uh, the land having rest. And that the, uh, after a, a period of time, you have what's called the jubilee, a, a year of jubilee. And um, that's when uh, uh, slaves are set free and debts are restored. And you, you see that what the angel is talking to Daniel about is the time when our Lord returns and we have the ultimate jubilee when people are restored and set free from their sins and from uh, the debt that, that they owe. We looked at the Olivet Discourse. We saw, you see that Jesus is answering the disciples particular questions about when the, when the temple's going to be destroyed. There's not going to be one stone standing on another. And we see that that actually happened in 70 AD when the Romans came and they surrounded Jerusalem and they destroyed the, the temple. And, uh, but the disciples have asked a couple of questions and maybe they didn't recognize there were a couple of questions. And one of the questions is, when's this gonna happen? When's it gonna be there's not gonna be a, a, a stone standing upon another? And Jesus tells them, and, and what will be the sign of the, of the end of the time? And then Jesus says, but of that day, no man knows the day and the hour. It'll be like the days of Noah. Everybody's just going about doing their same things and then, it, then it'll come upon them. And so we see the, uh, from the Olivet Discourse, uh, Jesus talking about the end of days. And it's, it's not a thing that anybody really knows, a specific day. If somebody tells you it's going to happen in a certain year, a certain time, don't, don't stop your, your, your job and sell your house and go uh, where they want you to or whatever. Romans chapter 11, we looked at it. In Romans chapter 11, Paul's talking about the nation of Israel and the people, the Jews of the nation of Israel and how that God has put a temporary... Um, uh, um, what's the word? A temporary uh, blinding of them. But it's only in part. Not everyone is blinded, but there, there is a, a hardening in part. That's the word I was looking for. There's a hardening in part, but it's only partial and it's only temporary. But the time will come, and it seems that Paul is saying that the time will come towards the end when there's going to be, God's going to open their eyes and graft them as branches back into the olive tree. And that there's going to be just this massive return uh, of Israel to their Messiah and recognition of their Messiah. It seems to be that that's what Romans chapter 11 is telling us. Now tonight we're going to look at various passages. Um, but we're really going to uh, look primarily at one. And that is 1 Thessalonians uh, 4, uh, 13 through 17. But let's look at a couple of others before that time. Um, let's look, first of all, at John 14, 1 through 3. And was it, get a volunteer to look up Acts 1, 9 through 11. Okay. And a volunteer to look up 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 52. Okay. We got that. All right. Now let's see what we learn about the Lord's return from these uh, three passages in particular. Uh, James, you have John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, 
what I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Okay. What do we learn about the second coming there? Wherever Christ is, we will be there. Well, he's, he's coming back. It's the first thing. He said, I'm going away, but I'm going to come back. Mm -hmm. Jesus promises, I'm going to come back. And then where I am, you'll be. We'll be together, right? So that's, that's pretty basic about the return of Christ. He's returning for us. He's not going to leave us forever. not going to leave us as orphans. Um, he's going to come back for us. He's, he's preparing a place for us. All right, Acts 1, 9 through 11. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taking up, taken up from you into heaven, will come the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Okay. So we learn from this, from the angel speaking, Jesus is going to return. So that's kind of uh, just continuing to verify what Jesus said in John 14. But we learn something else. What new information do we get in Acts 1, 9 through 11 from the angel? He'll return the same way he went, went up. He'll return in the same way he went up. And what way was that? On the clouds. On the clouds. Yes, he's going to return in the clouds. They've seen him physically go up in the clouds. And the angel's saying he's going to come back the same one. He's coming back physically in the clouds, right? Okay, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and 52 through 52. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood is not the kingdom of God. But there is imperishable and there is the imperishable. Behold, I tell you in this Um, I think so. Right? Which is, uh, for this perishable body shall be changed. For this perishable body will shall be shall. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this body must be immortal. Put on the immortality, and the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on the immortal. Then shall come to pass the saying that is written. Death swallowed up in victory, and death is the victory, and death is the sin. Okay. So we, we see here uh, certainly that uh, the Lord is going to return, especially in verse 51. Um, what, do, what more do we learn about the Lord's return from 1 Corinthians 15 here? There's a bodily change. There's a bodily change. Uh, we're going to have. Restored bodies. Uh, John says we don't know exactly what will be, but we know what he likes for him. We'll see him face to face. Paul says in um, in Philippians that we wait for our Savior from heaven, or our true citizenship is in heaven, where we wait await our Savior to come. And when he comes, uh, we will have glorious bodies as his body. Right. And so we we see these things. What else does it tell us about the Lord's return? Anything? 
the dead will rise first. So uh, when he returns, the dead are going to come up out of the grave and rise first, and they'll receive. I mean, uh, they'll receive their glorified bodies at that time, and then what? Yeah, those those of us who remain will then rise. Do we find it and and meet them together, right? Anything else we find out about it? Will happen at the last trumpet. It will happen at the last trumpet. So there's going to be this trumpet sound and the flash and twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, and the trumpet will sound. So that's going to be the the thing, and the dead will will be raised imperishable, and and we will be changed. Um, and so uh, this is something that we see certain things from these three passages regarding our Lord's return. First of all, he promises to return. Then the angel promises, and the angel says when he returns, he's going to come on the clouds. Then we see that um, in 1 Corinthians, that when he returns, the dead are coming with him. Those who have died and who are with him in spirit now will come. Their bodies will rise up, and they'll receive glorified bodies. And we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with him in the air. And we, we find out that he's, when he returns, he's going to come back in, suddenly in a flash. And there's going to be trumpet sounds, right? It's another aspect of it. So these are just some, some things we, we get gleaned from these, uh, these verses regarding the return of the Lord. Now, I don't think anybody's going to disagree with anything we've said so far. But now when we get to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, there may be some things that believers may disagree on. But I'm going to tell you what I believe, so we'll go from there. Uh, now on to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's look at that together. So someone read for us from there, um, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Do you know what the context, uh, especially in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, all of 1 Thessalonians actually, and 2 Thessalonians as well, do you know what the context is? It's what's the Greek term? Apatosin? <laughs> oh, we're going to talk about that in a little while, but I would say that the, the context of what's going on in Paul's writing this and the reason he's writing is to encourage them. And he says, encourage one another with these words. There were certain ones in uh, Thessalonica who believed that Jesus was coming back soon. I mean, and obviously uh, the first century church thought that Jesus was coming back quite soon. 
And they thought that God's punishment to people, uh, the way that God would punish people, was by death. And so they figured that if they were in good standing with God, that he would return and take them to be with him before they died. Now they've seen some of their close loved ones who were close with the Lord or they thought were die. And they're thinking, this is God's punishment on them. This is no good. And so Paul is responding to that to say, no, wait a minute. You're missing the boat here. That's... Uh, we have eternal life, yes, but it doesn't mean that you go on living right now in this. The time will come when you may die. And if you die in this life, it doesn't mean you're gone forever. It means that your loved one who has died has gone on to be with the Lord for a time. But when he does return, if they've gone on to be with him, you don't have to worry about them because they're coming back with him. Right? You're going to see them again. And then he begins to tell us some of, um, and we answered the number three there, who is it that God will bring with Jesus in verse 14? He's bringing those who have died in Christ with him, right? They're coming back. If you have a, a loved one who was a believer and they've died and gone on to be with the Lord, my mother, she's coming back with him, right? And I'm sure some of you have loved ones. I think that this is, one of the reasons that I, I would say, yeah, we're going to know our loved ones in heaven again. We're going to recognize them. We will recognize them. I think Paul's trying to encourage them with this as well. So flip it over. Number four here. Describe what takes place in verse 16. And then, then compare that with Acts 1, 11 and 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52. What takes place in verse 14? Uh, verse 16, I'm sorry, thank you. The Lord descends. The Lord descends. And what, what, how does that appear in his des- descending? Voice, a loud cry, a voice of the archangel, and, and a trumpet. Sounds pretty noisy, right? Sounds pretty noisy to me. So we got the Lord descending, voice, the shout of the archangel, and a trumpet sounding. This is this is a loud, noisy event. All right. Who would precede this coming? Um, let's look at Revelation one seven. Hold your place there in First Thessalonians four, because we're going to be back to that a lot. But but look in uh, Revelation one verse seven. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds. Sound familiar? Okay. Look, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, they're going to see him. And all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. Who's going to see him coming? Everybody. Everybody. Who is going to hear this voice of the archangel and this trumpet call? Everybody. 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 I believe that that is the case, that everyone will see it. I see no indication that it's anything else. If it's anything else, it's not here within the text that we're reading. If it's anything else, it's something you import to the text. Okay? But said that it's not that's not in the text that anyone 
that, that there would be anyone who would not see and hear this if they're living at the time that it happened. All right, number five there. What will happen when Christ returns and in what order do these events take place? And we've already mentioned it from 1 Corinthians uh, 1, 15, 51 through 52, but we saw it again here in 1 Thessalonians 6, uh, 6, 4, 16 and 17, didn't we? What takes place? The Lord will descend. He descends and? Oh, sorry. No, that's good. <laughs> that's the first thing. The, Lord, the Lord's descending with the with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet call. The dead in Christ rise. Yeah, and then, and then those who are, who are still alive and here on earth, we're caught up together with him, right? To meet him in the air. And so that's number six there. What happens to Christians who are still living when Christ returns in verse 17? We're caught up together to meet them in the air, right? Okay, now, this is where we begin to look at some of this Greek. And this is, this is the way to look at Greek for those of us that don't know much Greek, right? Uh, this is, uh, I, I ran off for you, First uh, Thessalonians 4.17. This is what's called the Greek interlinear. The Greek interlinear, it gives you the Greek... Here where you see these Greek symbols, that's all the Greek. That's how it's spelled with the Greek letters. And then it will transliterate it. It spells it right above that in the English letters. So I can kind of tell you how you would say these words. And then underneath it, it gives you the English translation. Okay, got that? So the top line is, the top line on here is the, is the, the Greek transliteration. How you would say that Greek word. Underneath that is the Greek letters and the Greek words themselves, and then under that's the translation into English, okay? Now, the Greek word, you'll see it, um, you see it at the end of the first line here. Uh, <laughs> somebody want to chance it? Harpage somita? Is that close? All right, that's that's, that's the English word. That that is yeah, that's the uh, that's the Greek word for which we translate in English. What's it translated as? Right underneath it. We'll be caught away. We'll be caught away. Caught up. Each of our Greek, each of our English translations say we're caught up, and so that Greek word is the one that's translated in our English translations. Caught up. We will be caught up. Okay. Now this word uh, in, in Greek that's translated into English is caught up. In Latin, by the way, um, that Greek word is rapere. Is that it? Rapere? Rapere? Whatever. Latin word is that. That's where we get our English word rapture. Okay? So you've heard of the rapture before. This is where we get it in Scripture. There is to be a catching up of God's people when the Lord returns. We're caught up to meet him in the air when he's bringing with him the saints that have been there. Their bodies are resurrected uh, and at first, and then the rest of us who are here are caught up, or we're raptured, if you will, to meet him and meet them in the air. That's what's going on here in verse 17. Okay? So this is where we get 
the idea of a rapture. It is a catching up of the believers to be uh, caught up and meet the Lord in the air uh, with all of those who, have, who are coming with him. Are you with me so far? So we only get the rapture part from the Latin translation, right. not... Right, from the Latin word. Yeah. Okay. But that's... Because they can't say this big word. Yeah, that's, that's why. Yeah, <laughs> because we can't say the big word. How do you spell the word in Latin? Um, yeah, the, the, the Latin word right here, R-A-P-E-R-E. Oh, yes, okay. Okay. Thank you. All right. So what happens when believers are caught up together with them in verse 17? What happens when we're caught up together with them? We meet the Lord in the air. We meet the Lord in the air. Okay. Now, that seems pretty innocent enough, right? <laughs> meet the Lord what about this word right here? Right. And if you look at it and you go, that's not so important, right? This word meet right here. Well, this is where we're going to do a little bit more Greek here, okay? Now, take again the interlinear that I gave you. Okay? 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Are you with me? Yes. You see where it says uh, underneath the word, it says the meeting here. Fourth word. Fourth, fourth word on the second line. Apa. Apontesis is where the word comes from. Um, and I'll show you that in just a little while. But that's where it is. Apontesis is the Greek word. Now, let me give you some definitions of it, okay? And not just one definition. First of all, the New International uh, Dictionary of the New Testament Theology is a, a three-volume work on Greek words, predominantly, uh, biblical words is all it is. This three volumes had, I mean, it's probably 3,000 pages worth of, of material, and it defines this particular Greek word, apontesis, as the ancient expression for the civic welcome of an important visitor or the triumphal entry of a new ruler into the capital city and thus to his reign. Okay? So. In the Old Testament, don't they refer, refer to this as the. Like fielding in the Middle Ages? where the bachelor would pledge his loyalty to the king or whatever, and when the king visited, he came out. The it, term suzerain. Okay. The suzerain. Yeah, I, I didn't look to see what the Septuagint usage is. It's only used three times in the New Testament. We're going to get to that, too. But it, it could very well be. Um, secondly, the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. This is like the final say on Greek words. It's 10 volumes and probably 8,000 pages worth. And everyone who uh, is into biblical Greek, this is, this is the like the final word to refer to on this. So the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament states this word is to be understood as a technical term for a civic custom of antiquity whereby 
A public welcome is accorded by a city to important visitors. Okay? Be like dignitaries coming to Gainesville and he's flying into the airport. And what do we do? Well, our city fathers, whatever, what do they do? They they go out to the airport to meet him, don't they? They don't just send a they don't just send a taxi to pick him up. They go out there. We see it and and uh, uh, the nation, a, a foreign king or something comes, we send somebody from our government, some high up person there to, to meet them. They roll out the red carpet. Um, and so that's, that's what it says there. Now, we go on. Now this is the one sheet that's all by itself. There's nothing on the back of it there. We go on more definitions. Vine's expository dictionary, the Old Testament and New Testament words. Uh, this gives... Uh, it, it, it gives this definition. It is used in the papyri of a newly arriving magistrate. It seems that the special idea of the word was the official welcome of a newly arrived dignitary. That's this word we have translated to meet. Okay? So, on this, this second sheet here, where I've got the word... You'll see on the interlinear right here, this interlinear has got numbers up, up beside the word. Those are, those are Strong's numbers. You've heard of Strong's Concordance and Strong's Dictionary. They're used a lot. And so that number you'll see is on, this, on here. So that's Strong's number and apontesis is the word here. And I want you to notice here where it says Strong's Concordance right here on the left, which says Strong's Concordance. You go down, it, it gives a definition. It says a meeting, but then it says usage, the act of meeting to meet, and in parentheses, a phrase seemingly almost technical for the reception of a newly arrived official. Okay? So we're seeing that this has, I mean, when we say to meet, it's, it seems a little more to it than this. We're meeting him. Now, I want us to see over here on the same page, you see what's called Englishman's Concordance? Everybody see Englishman's Concordance? What the Englishman's Concordance is, is a concordance that gives you each time that Greek word is used in the Bible. How many times is that Greek word used in the Bible according to Englishman's Greek con or Englishman's uh, Concordance? Three. Three times. Where's it used? You see it right here. Matthew 25, 6, Acts 28, 15, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. Okay, so we've got 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. We've already seen that meet the Lord in the air. Let's look at the other passages and see how it's used, okay? The, uh, first of all, Matthew 25, 6. Who wants to get that? Midnight, there was a cry. Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Okay. So, you know the context? These uh, virgins are, are waiting for the bridegroom to come. And um, some of them are not prepared, right? And they go out to get oil for their lamps. And they come back and the bridegroom's already come. 
And, but when they hear he's coming, those who are prepared, they go out to meet him, right? He's, he's coming. And so they're going out to meet him. What are they going to do when they meet? Does he come to get them, to take them back with him? No, they're going to need him to take them to the place where the wedding festivities take place. They went into the marriage feast. Went into the marriage feast, right? Okay, so this is, this is one place that's used. One of the three places where the, the, the virgins go out to meet the bridegroom because they're excited he's coming. And they are so excited, they go out to meet him and they escort him in. Right? Let's look at the next place. Acts 2, 28, excuse me, Acts 28, beginning in verse 15. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. Okay, <clears throat> what's the context here? Paul's headed to Rome. Some of the people in Rome heard he's coming. And when they say he's getting close, those places that he mentions, I believe the furthest one is 40 miles from Rome. They hear he's there. What do they do? Let's go meet him there. Let's go meet him there so he can take us back to Jerusalem, right? No. Why are they going to meet him there? Escorting him into Rome. This is an exciting time. We're going to throw out the red carpet for him. Meeting him, right? Paul's arrived. Huh? Paul's arrived. Paul's arrived. <laughs> okay. Now, and so with this in mind, how does how does how do the understandings of Matthew twenty-five and Acts twenty-eight fit with the definitions we got from the? Um, from the New International Theological Dictionary, or the, the New International Dictionary of New Testament Theology, from the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, from Vine's Expository uh, Dictionary of New Testament Words, and from Strong's Dictionary. How do these definitions fit with that? Going out to meet the dignitary. Going out to meet the dignitary. Bringing him in, right? Because he's coming here. We heard he's coming here and we're excited about it. We're going out to meet him. Does that, does that fit with that understanding of this? So why would, why would we be caught up? Why would we, we be raptured up to meet him in the air? Escort him here. Escort him back in. What's about to happen? He's about to create a new heaven. He's about to create a new heaven and a new earth and what? Take over. <laughs> he's, he's come to take over. King is coming. Yeah. He is, huh? It could be. Yeah, he has come to take over. So we're caught up together with him to meet him in the air, to bring him in. Okay? Um, I, I, when, I, when I look at this, I know that there are those who say, why else meet him? In, why, why would we meet him in the air if, if he's just going to come right down? He's why taking us up to be with him for, for seven years, right? But the idea of meeting him in the air is that no, we're not. He's coming back here right now. This is happening right this minute. He's coming here to, to, uh, 
set things up, to bring in judgment in all of these things right now. Remember, we've got to look at this too. That is a custom of the Persian world, the Jewish world, the Greek, and the Roman. I mean, if they all have done this. This is a tradition for centuries. So when he tells people this, they get the concept of the importance of this. Right. And, and the thing is, is, is uh, see, they had a separate word for that type of meeting. We don't really. We say, we're going we're to meet somebody. But we don't necessarily have a separate word that says we're going to meet them so we can roll out the red carpet to them. Right? <laughs> right, we're going to meet them, to escort them in. One other thing about meeting in the air, <laughs> and I, I just got this in some study today. Um, Leon Morris suggests that the possibility of meeting in the air Who's the prince of the power of the air? The devil. The devil, Satan. So we're meeting him in the air, and what's that showing? We're on your grounds here, buddy. We're taking over. This is, you're, you're, you're defeated. You're beat. We're meeting in your place and show meeting in the air is significant of the fact that we're, the king has come. You're defeated. You're done. Taking over all of it. Well, um, at any rate, I, I hope you can see I'm not just making this stuff up. I'm not just, uh, um, not just um, deceived by others who are able to see this thing. That's the reason I wanted to give you the Greek stuff here. I, I know some of it's technical. I don't want to look at the Greek, but the, but the Greek is there. And sometimes the Greek confuses things, but not this time, I don't think. I think the Greek and the, and the definition of the Greek is uh, pretty, pretty straightforward here. And the definitions that are given are consistent with the other uses of the word in Scripture. Therefore, I think it's pretty clear that when uh, Paul is talking to those in Thessalonica and us about the rapture, yes, we're raptured to meet him in the air, to escort him in, to bring in an eternal kingdom. And I, I do believe that that is what Paul was trying to communicate uh, to those in uh, his death. All right. Um, next week, Next week, I think we're going to go ahead and bite the bullet and move into the book of Revelation. <laughs> <laughs> we're we're going we're to look particularly at two chapters, um, two chapters in the book of Revelation if you want to read them. Um, Revelation 19 and 20. Um, those are very, very important chapters in our understanding of the end times. And so, uh, if you want to prepare for it, uh, look at those. In fact, where we get the term millennium, the only place in Scripture it's mentioned is in Revelation 20. And so, where we get the term millennium, and so it's important for us to look and see, try to try to figure what does uh, Revelation 20 teach us about millennium. All right. Um,
beautiful.